Well, good morning, y'all. I'm Stephen, the pastor. Welcome, uh, and welcome to you online. Glad that you're with us. We are continuing to do in-person and online services because we have folks in our church that should be here, and we have folks in our church who should not be here. And so we celebrate the fact that God can keep us together as a church, even when we're separated. Um, we're in a series. Uh, it's a big one. It's controversial. Uh, the series is called One Family. It's God's call to racial reconciliation and renewal. Uh, and in this series, we're trying to understand how we can have the Revelation 7 heart of God, that where all of history is going, God wants to gather people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, from all ethnicities, gather them together as one family so that we might all be a family together. That's God's heart, and he wants to give us that heart. And our message today is called, uh, When How We Act Falls Short of Who We Are. Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful. When how we act falls short of who we are. And today I want to spend uh, some more time comparing systemic racism to what Christians sometimes call indwelling sin. So indwelling sin, we're going to talk about what that means. Um, it, it, it's the ongoing struggles that every Christian has. Uh, that everybody actually has, including Christians. Um, and it helps us, I think, to acknowledge the systemic problems that exist in our nation. So I want to do a quick shout out to our kids. Um, one way in the back, who's a little bit younger, probably not quite paying attention, although I did just get her attention. That's awesome. But also kids at home, I know that you're sitting there with your folks on the couch, in the room. Just a quick question for you. Um, have you ever been forced to apologize to your brother or sister? Like you did something, your parents want you to apologize. You don't feel like apologizing, right? How does that go, right? In my house growing up, even for me personally, what that produced typically was like a, sorry. And then sometimes my brother would be like, uh you know, which is kind of like, that's okay. Like our parents would like force us to reconcile when we really didn't want to. Um, just want to ask a question. After that happens, after you offer that heartless apology, what's your relationship like? You usually don't feel good, right? You usually don't feel happy. You usually don't feel connected. You feel far away still. Um, and I'm bringing this up because I think adults can feel that way too. There are times when adults are forced to apologize for things that they don't want to apologize for, and it doesn't actually produce good relationships. I think systemic racism is connected to this. And I'll tell you about that here in just a second. Um, last week, we talked about how the fact that there's two kinds of racism. There is individual racism and then systemic racism. And systemic racism is a debated topic in our day and age. Um, I found this one uh, author, his name is David French. Uh, he's a writer. Uh, I feel like he's really a helpful person to pay attention to. And he wrote this. He's got this definition of systemic racism. He says this, systemic racism is a system in which public policies, institutional practices, and cultural representations work in reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. Um, he goes on, he says, it identifies parts of our history and our culture that have privileged whiteness and then disadvantaged people of color. And then he says, it's not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. 
Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic, and political systems in which we all exist. Now, I feel like this is a kind of a a very middle of the road type of definition because there are extremes on both sides of the debate about systemic racism. Um, some Some say that systemic racism no longer exists in our country. Um, Some say that systemic racism is a myth made up by leftists to gain control of our society. And then you have others who say that actually racism is the underlying cause of every unequal outcome in our country and that the right of the political aisle ignores it because they want to keep using blacks and minorities as the backbone of their economic injustice. So extremes on both sides. What does the Bible say? The Bible has a lot to say. um, And I want to look at a particular subject in the Bible uh, and, and look at that and see how it might be able to help us as we try to navigate the discussion around systemic racism. And so the Bible says that because of the gospel of Jesus, we should be able and willing to see and to care about the brokenness of our society. Right, Because of the gospel of Jesus, we should be freed up to notice and to care about things that are broken. We shouldn't feel like we have to hide things that are broken. Okay, The gospel frees us up to be honest about who we are individually, who we are as a nation. It's because we're saved by grace, right? It's not because we're good enough, but because Jesus was good enough and Jesus is good enough. That's why we're saved. And so because we're saved by God's grace it shouldn't surprise us to hear that human beings create societies that are deeply flawed by sin. Like that shouldn't surprise us that sinful people would create societies that have different levels and layers of sinfulness. And so uh, what the Bible says about Christians, I think shows us a way to see and to think about the good and the bad in our own country. And so I want to show you. So there's a couple verses that are in your bulletin down below the Romans 7 verses. The first one is Romans 6, verse 6. It says this. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, that's Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So this is powerful. What this is saying is it says being a Christian means that you are radically different. This is saying that Christians are no longer slaves to sin. We're set free from sin when we believe in Jesus. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 goes even farther. And it says this, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means if you believe in Jesus, you are put on his team. He is your leader. He is your representative. He's the one who makes you right before God. And if anyone is in Christ, he's the new creation. New creation. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so for Christians who believe in Jesus, everything is new. All of the old has passed away. And so we could say it this way, according to the Bible or according to the book, like if we look at the books, the book, the Bible, according to the book, we are new people because we're united to Jesus. Everything about us is new. Everything about us is different. Nothing is the same. Jesus's presence is, uh, makes everything different. And so if this is true, 
and the Bible seems to say that it is, then Christians shouldn't sin, right? If our old self is our, is our sinful self, that that's part of who we used to be, but that's been crucified with Jesus, that person's dead and gone, and now we're new, then we shouldn't sin anymore. You've been set free. You're not under sin's power anymore. You're a new creation. And yet, right, if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, I mean, even a day, you realize that your life doesn't look like that, right? If we're honest, it just, it, it doesn't look like that. Christians struggle. Um, our lives continue to be sinful and selfish. And we're not alone. We're not alone in this because the same guy who wrote what we just read in the Bible also said this about himself in Romans chapter 7. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote half the New Testament, okay? And this is what he says about himself in Romans 7, verses 18 through 24. He says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? I want to do what's right, but I don't find in me the ability to carry it out. He goes on, verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I read this and I'm like, oh God, thank you. <laughs> thank you that I could find myself in the Bible, right? That you talk about me, that this is real, that you're honest about how bad things can be inside of me. Jump to verse 21. So I find it to be a law. So he's like, here's how it works. I find it to be a law means this is generally how life works for people that are following Jesus. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, right? You're busy minding your own, you're minding your own business. You're doing what's right. You're, you're aiming at good things. And then all of a sudden you feel like, wait, hold on. Like, where did that thought come from? Where did that desire come from? Why did I fly off the handle? Why do I always react in this awful way in this situation? If you feel that way, you're not alone. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, like the other parts of my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's like, there's a war going on in here that there's a part of my heart that loves Jesus, that wants God, that wants to love people, that wants to do all things right. But I find that there's, there's a different law. There's another group of things that I call them my members. There's another part of me that wages war against that part of me. And he just concludes, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So here's what I want you to see in looking at the Romans 6 verse, the 2 Corinthians 5 verse, and then these Romans 7 verses. I want you to see this. There's a big difference in, in Christians. There's a big difference in Christians between who we are on the books versus how we live. So there's what the Bible says about us. We're new creatures. Our old self is crucified with Jesus, right? On the books, we are perfect in Christ. And yet there's a big difference between who we are on the books versus how we live. Now, 
if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're like, duh. <laughs> you're like, Stephen, this is not news to me. I know that's not news to you, but I want us to spend a minute and just to think about for a second, why? Why do we still struggle with sin? Why are we still selfish if God has set us free? And then I want, to, I, want, I want to remind you that we did a series of messages called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality about two years ago. And during that series, some of you remember it, during that series, we talked about how we saw in the scriptures that even with Jesus in our hearts, there's a lot of our old lives that just get carried into our Christianity. And, and during that series, we saw that we bring old habits and addictions into our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus loves us, he rescues us, he saves us, he forgives us. And then he looks at us and he goes, all right, we got work to do. You know, we got work to do here. So we have addictions and old habits that we bring into our relationship with Jesus. We bring old family patterns. We bring family of origin issues into our relationship with Jesus. Uh, we bring trauma and brokenness into our relationship with Jesus. There are moments in your life, you might not know this, but there are times when we make vows, like in our anger, in our pain, in our frustration, when we say things like, I'm never going to let this happen to me again. Uh, we make vows sometimes that actually keep us in bondage. Now, Jesus is powerful enough to change all of these things. He's powerful enough to embrace all of this brokenness that we bring into our relationship with him. And he is willing to work on these things. But we have to use the, the, the resources that Jesus gives us. We have to spend time with him and bring him into the room with these areas of brokenness and selfishness in order for us to be able to work out our salvation, to experience freedom from these kinds of of continued bondage and brokenness. Like this is the part of growing as a Christian. This is uh, the big theological term for this is sanctification, where we become more holy. We become more like Jesus. Um, and so it's good news that Jesus gives us his power. It's good news that Jesus's presence is with us so that we can grow in all of these areas. And it's even better news that Jesus brings forgiveness and acceptance with God that is not dependent on our success in our growth too, right? So Jesus loves us, accepts us, forgives us, done deal, then wants to work with us so we can grow, but our growth does not determine his love for us. And that is good news. Like that is wonderful news, um, that our forgiveness is not dependent on our growth. So connected with me here on what it looks like to be a Christian with all this baggage that we bring into our relationship with Jesus. Well, I think that this is a good way for us to think about our own country. I think that our country can be thought of uh, in a similar way. Because if Christians who've been saved by God's grace and are filled with God's presence and they're filled with God's love, if they can struggle so much with ongoing sin, how much more would an entire nation of people struggle to? right? I mean, how much more is a country the same way? Let's do a little bit of history here. Slavery did exist in our country. Slavery was an expression of both individual and systemic racism. But then slavery was abolished in England. It was abolished in the United States by movements that were dominated by Christians. Um, if there's a movie, Amazing Grace, that documents the, 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 
the life of William Wilberforce, who brought an end to slavery in England. And the abolitionist movements in this country were dominated by Christians because Christians saw the problems and they cared. They saw the problems and they cared. And so the Civil War abolished slavery. And at that point, slaves were legally declared free. And this was huge. And so on the books of our country, slaves were declared free. And again, did some research. There were 27 million free people in the United States at the end of the Civil War. Plus, there were 4 million now newly freed slaves. Here's the question that I want you to wrestle with. Okay, when it comes to the subject of systemic racism, here's the question that I want you to wrestle with. Do you think that the day after the Civil War was won and the slaves were freed, that all 27 million white people woke up the next morning ready to embrace all of their black brothers and sisters as completely co-equal image bearers of God? I mean, we know better, don't we? I mean, think back to the question that I started out asking the kids, right? When parents force their kids to apologize, the relationships often don't change and get better. Imagine demanding 27 million people to apologize. And not just to apologize, but imagine demanding that 27 million people now have to completely reorient the structure of society to include these four million black brothers and sisters. I mean, out of those 27 million apologies, there may have been some that were sincere. There may have been some that were sincere and actually knew what steps needed to be taken but how many millions of those apologies were not heartfelt? How many of those people didn't want to change anything at all? How many of those people didn't think that change was really that necessary? Or like how many people thought, okay, we'll embrace this, but it's really not going to be that big a difference. And they just continued to live in generally the ways that they were living before, thinking that, oh, well, like, I don't have slaves, therefore, I'm not a problem here. And so I want to just, again, emphasize this, that slavery was legal in our country. It was defended morally from the time of the pilgrims up until 1865. And so over 300 years of legal and cultural discrimination. Like that is gonna have a huge and deep-seated impact on our society. It will create family patterns. It'll create habits. It'll create commitments and ways of life and ways of thinking that cannot be undone in an entire country overnight. Now, and here's what's worse is that it's true that abolishing slavery ended racism on the books of the country, right? But then the Jim, Crow's law, the Jim Crow laws were passed. 
And then racial discrimination continued to be lawful and defended morally and often violently for another hundred years. So yes, blacks were freed you know, at the end of the Civil War in 1865, but then the Jim Crow laws were passed. And for the next hundred years, even after the Civil War ended slavery, these laws continued to legislate and then to morally defend discrimination. This is where the systems come from that are discriminatory. This is where the systems come from that disproportionately hurt blacks in our country. Well, then the Civil Rights Act of 1964, this is 100 years after the Civil War, this was another really good step, but it didn't end illegal discrimination or racism. What it did was it gave black Americans the legal tools to fight back against injustices that were still legal. And so I say all this because in the same way that Christians, that two things can be true about a Christian, right? That we can be saved and still have the power of sin living inside of us. In the same way, there's also a big difference in our country between who we are on the books and how we actually live. Again, two things can be true in once. And, and this is where I get really frustrated because I believe that our nation in the history of human civilization, our nation made has made incredible strides. To abolish slavery was something that no one else had done except for England. And so we were one of the first to abolish slavery. And that is incredible. And the people who did that and supported that and, and brought it about, they should be celebrated. But we still have a long way to go. And I think the gospel invites us to not have to be defensive about it. The gospel invites us to say, look, we can be honest about this. We can see the problem and we should own this reality and care for our black and our Hispanic brothers and sisters here in San Diego. And so what can we do? What can we do? What can you do like right now? What can you do this week? I'm gonna give you three things, three things to do because we're, we're taking baby steps as a church. We're taking steps in this direction. So I want you to join us in this. First, I want you to pray this week. I want you to pray and I want you to ask God, am I aware? God, am I aware of this? Am I aware of the deep and abiding and centuries long issues that our country has walked in when it comes to racism? Like, am I aware of these things? Um, would you please think and pray and ask God to show you more of this reality? Would you ask God to show you, to open your eyes and help you see? And then in this prayer, please join us. We started praying 40 days before the election for racial and political reconciliation. Um, so please join us. Uh, we're praying every day uh, for, before the election, leading up to, to the election in November um, this last week. So we've, we've got a guide, like Molly said, you can go to our website. If you use the connection card, just give us your email address. We'll be happy to email it to you. But it's a daily prayer guide 
um, that just directs us into how to think and how to pray toward racial and political reconciliation. Um, this last week, we've been focusing on justice. And as I've been praying and reading the scriptures, like I've been realizing and I've been longing and I've been asking God to give me and to give our nation a vision for justice that both Republicans and Democrats could agree to aim for. And it feels impossible, but God can do the impossible. And so join us in praying every day for racial and political reconciliation. So pray. Um, second, spend time with others who are different. My goal for you all is that you'd invite at least two people into your life who are of a different ethnicity than you are. Um, and ask God to share more of his Revelation 7 heart with you so that your heart can be enlarged to include more people from other ethnicities. And I want to encourage you, ask them if they have any experience dealing with systemic racism and listen without judgment. Listen to the reality that they're living in without judging them, without, I mean, just listen and try to understand their experience. And then the third thing, um, I want you to give $42. Give $42. We were taking, again, this is a small financial step to give you an opportunity to make a difference in combat systemic racism in San Diego. We have our one family special offering. We're trying to raise $5,000 above and beyond our normal giving um, to go to two organizations uh, that are serving black and Hispanic communities here in San Diego. Um, $3,000 of this offering is gonna go to the David's Harp Foundation to provide staff childcare for five months. So we're gonna provide childcare for them. And then the other 2,000 is gonna go to Alma Community Care uh, to provide individual and group therapy for moms who didn't know that the word trauma was in the English dictionary, who are carrying pain and anxiety and grief and trouble in their lives and didn't know that there's a name for what they're dealing with, much less a way to deal with it. And so both of these organizations are fighting systemic racism in Jesus' name by building relationships and sharing the gospel. Okay, so please give. Currently, uh, because of your generosity, we've raised $2,091. That's awesome. And so our hope is that every person who's connected to our church would participate in this. That's why we're asking for $42. And so we know that some of you will be able to give more. Some of you won't be able to give that much. You'll be able to give less, but we want everyone to participate in this. And so pray, spend time and give, and then look to Jesus because that's what Paul did. At the end of Paul's lament over his wretchedness and his body of death, he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That for Paul, the reason he could be so brutally honest with the people he was writing to was because he knew that he was covered by the grace of God. And so for all of us, if you've been guilty of individual or systemic racism, there is grace for you, forgiveness. And Jesus wants to bring out of your brokenness new life. He wants to bring out of your life something new that would make a difference for po like a positive difference in our city. Um, if you've been ignorant, then like, then confess that to God and he will give you his heart and his mind so that you can begin to take steps in this direction. 
that this is what Jesus is calling us to. And so let's do this together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our dad. Thanks for your forgiveness. It is so easy for us. God, we confess that life can be so busy to the point that we just don't have bandwidth to add other problems that are in existence. And in that way, it's so easy for us to be dismissive of our black and our Hispanic brothers and sisters who are suffering in our day, in our city, in our country. And we ask you, God, to forgive us. Forgive us and draw near to us. Help us to see the world the way that you do. Help us not to be defensive. Help us not to be led astray by either extreme political party, but to be focused on you, Jesus, and your love for all ethnicities. Thank you that as a church, we have partnerships that are that are bringing an end to these problems in the lives of individual people. God, we want to support them. We want to continue to partner with them in deeper and fuller ways. And so draw near to us. And Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for dying for our sins so that we could know that, you're gonna, that you forgive us. Work in our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen.